Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. One, one brief announcement for the women's event this Friday. I was, I was, uh, I'm to let you know that registration is open till Tuesday, but if you could sign up uh, today, uh, please do so. But it's open till Tuesday as an FYI for the women's event on Friday. So, All right, our text this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 10. 2 Samuel chapter 10. Uh, it's on page 261 in the Red Bibles. While you turn there, I want to offer you a little background on the text. Uh, king David is finally made king over Israel in chapter 5. God has made a significant covenant with him, and things are looking good for David and Israel. There seems to be no barriers between him and the mission of God has given him to be a light to the nations. The mission that God has been his desired for his people ever since he chose Abraham in Genesis 12. The covenant is made in Genesis 15. It's, it's, it's reiterated with uh, Isaac and Jacob, and it's, it's a, a, another covenant is given with Israel. And it's said every time that they might be a light and a blessing to the nation. So here we are. David, finally, the promised land has been, has been conquered from uh, Dan to Beersheba. It's time to start loving the nations. So, But before we dive into our text today to see how David seeks to love the nations, uh, a brief story for you. I have a lawnmower that is a taker. And for someone who is not mechanically minded like myself, we don't have the best relationship. So I, I bought the lawnmower used, it's, and it was, it's, it's one of those self-propelled mowers. But when I first used it, I quickly discovered that the adjustment to the, the, the speed lever uh, was broken, and it actually could not be lowered from the max speed. So not, not having the savvy to fix it, this past year, my lawn mowing experience has been very bumpy, very fast, and I've been feeling I've been training for bull riding all summer long. Not surprisingly, about halfway through the summer, the lawnmower decided to take a little bit more when its bumpy job ended up bumping one of the wheels off, clean off while I was mowing. Uh, thankfully, I did not run over the wheel, um, but uh, when it came off, I had to take off the other wheel and break the wire in half and rewire that one, and then I had to wire on this one and fix it. And then about three quarters of the way through the summer, the lawnmower was, it, it took again, and I was pulling it to turn it on, and anybody can guess what happened? Pull cord ripped straight off in my hand, clean off. So to fix the, this particular pull cord on this model lawnmower, I had to actually uh, dissemble the gas tank from the engine, then remove the engine, uh, the head of the engine, and then access the, to get access to the feed cord. So now, at the end of the year, having used it for one season, I kid you not, I think I must have did something when I took it apart. Go figure. Uh, the self-propel self function, it has had an exact reversal. It now only moves very, very slowly, 
It's like, it's like, a, it's, a, it's so slow compared to what it was like the rest of the year. And I can, tr- I can push it higher speeds, but it has this bad rattle coming from the, it's like I'm going clack, 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 clack. The lawnmower is a taker. But we all live in a world very similar to my lawnmower. A world that can take a child who never seems happy, no matter how many different shapes you try to cut their food. A spouse who never seems willing to forgive or move on, no matter how many good things you do to make up for it. A sibling who, again, took that precious item of yours. Drivers who cut in line, risking lives to take their place. A pizza place or a coffee shop intentionally ruining your order because you didn't tip enough. A dentist who makes up cavities when there are none. An auto shop that overcharges or breaks something in your car without telling you. These things happen in our world. And it leads us to the question, how can we make sense of a world that takes for itself? How can we make sense of a world that takes for itself? Let's go ahead and read 2 Samuel chapter 10. (coughs) After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them. For the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain in Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the the king of Ma'akah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rahab, the men of Tob and Ma'akah, were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, Then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage. And let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. May the Lord do what seems uh, seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Syrians. And they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. And Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together and had a desert sent and brought out the Assyrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. 
the Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before David. And David killed of the Assyrians' men 700 chariots, 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobach, the commander of the army, so that he died there. And when the kings who were the servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be gracious to us. Be generous to us, Lord, that your word might um, convict us and stir in us, Lord, a heart that yearns for you, your kindness, your goodness, and causes us to desire the same in this world. Pray this in your name. Amen. So how can we make sense of a world that takes for itself? This passage is actually quite beautiful and very exciting early on. Chapter 10 actually starts as a mirror to chapter 9, which Pastor Dan preached on last week. So in chapter 9, David shows a deeply beautiful kindness and love to a man named Mephibosheth, whose royal father Saul, the last king of Israel, had died. This love in the Hebrew word, this love in Hebrew is called chesed, which Pastor Dan talked on yesterday. So I, I, Sally Lloyd-Jones, uh, if, if you're familiar with her work, uh, lots of children's books, uh, she has a Jesus storybook Bible, and she describes this word chesed as a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love or kindness. And here in chapter 10, David once again shows that same deeply beautiful kindness to a man named Hanan, whose royal father, Nahash, has just died. Sound pretty familiar? Saul, um, same with Mephibosheth, same with Nahash. And the word in Hebrew is actually exactly the same. It's chesed. The ESV translates it in our text as loyally. In this context, it's a covenantal kind of kindness and loyalty that is shown. And the author of 2 Samuel intentionally sets up these two chapters as parallels to contrast each other, to contrast um, two different reactions that the world might have to kindness that is shown. But this kindness is even more exciting in our chapter because this kindness is to a random Ammonite whose father just died. You see, in chapter, well, it's actually not quite so random because in chapter 1, of, uh, excuse me, chapter 1, in 1 Samuel chapter 11, Nahash, who just died in our passage, attacks Israel, but he is defeated by King Saul. And after his defeat, apparently, Saul made a covenant with Nahash and established an alliance with the Ammonites that likely required them to be subservient to Israel. So now Nahash dies, and David extends loyal covenant kindness to Hanan, which is a beautiful, beautiful, exciting moment in the, in the, in the story of Israel, because this is what God has been calling Israel to do since he, he started, when he, since he chose a people with Abraham in Genesis 12. God said, I chose you so that you will be a blessing. And then he repeats that same, that same uh, pattern again and again with Isaac and with Jacob in Genesis 26 and with Genesis 28. And then when he chooses Israel with uh, Abraham, excuse me, with Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, God says, I chose you to be a priestly nation. What does a priest do? He, he intercedes and, and, goes on be, and goes to God on behalf, of the, uh, on behalf of the people. And if Israel is to be a priestly nation, that means they are to go and to intercede on behalf of the world. They are to go and be a light for the nations. They are to go and show covenant kindness to the world around them. And so finally, 
In the former chapters, right in chapter 8, from Dan to Beersheba, the promised land has been conquered. And it is now, it is now Israel's, it's now the time has begun for them to start showing the covenant kindness to be a blessing to the nation so that they might be blessed and might know the Lord, the God of Israel, the Lord over all the earth. It's exciting. Only, how does Hanan respond to this covenant kindness? Out of suspicion, he scorns David's kindness, returning kindness with evil. In verse 4, he shames David's representatives by exposing their privates and shaving their beards, which were grown as a source of pride. And they cut them, and to cut them in this way was something they would typically do to prisoners. So this humiliating insult was intended to be applied not just to these men, but to the ones they represented, to David, to Israel, to the God they served. It is a sad reality that suspicion and scorn is even a feasible response to kindness. That out of fear or past wounds or the world owes me or whatever it might be, the kindness is not only rejected, but it's punished. How can we make sense of a world that takes for itself? We must realize that kindness may be returned with suspicion and scorn. Eight years ago, my wife made a vow to me to love and to cherish, to have and to hold in sickness and in health till death do us part. And yet, I'm sad to say that there are times I find myself operating in my marriage as, as, as if I don't believe those vows ever happened. I take a stance of suspicion, whether it's because I had a hard day or uh, someone cut me off on the drive home. I don't know. You name it. But I walk in the door and I just, yeah, for example, my wife will mention a passing comment on the fact that I just bought three half gallons of ice cream for myself. And my first thought is that she is judging me for either spending too much money or for eating too unhealthily. When the reality is, is she's chuckling to herself because of how much I love ice cream and she loves the quirks. I'm suspicious out of the gate. I don't even give her a chance to prove those vows she took to me to be, those vows she took to be true. That she is for me not against me. Rondelay will try to tell a joke sometimes and rather than hearing a fun winky moment, I hear it as a backhanded attack on the way that I feel like I've been failing. Oftentimes, like I said, the suspicion that I have in my life at times comes from a frame of mind to doubt anything brought to me by being in a state of anger, sadness, unforgiveness, and I may not even be aware at the time, but it begins to hurt my marriage. She graciously has forgiven me for those moments and I'm fighting to, be, to, to have my mind see that she is for me. But regardless of the motive, I sadly can say that at times I can relate to the Ammonites. Suspicion, not knowing the motive in, in the Ammonites' case, can lead them to return kindness with scorn and with evil. I'm sorry for those who sit here this morning and have felt this recently. Such a response to the kindness you show or have shown can be, can be very wounding. Or maybe the kindness you have sought to show has been something you've been trying to do for years in your marriage or in your friendship, in your family relationship. We did just have Thanksgiving, right? Got together with family. How hard did you work to try to be kind only to have it rebuffed and even put down? This is a sad reality of living in a world with loved ones and neighbors. 
to whom we are called to show kindness and who have been wounded and wound others and seek only to take. It is a sad reality in our own lives as well for which we might be guilty. Is your knee-jerk reaction towards a comment from your sibling, spouse, or parents heard as an attack or a critical comment? If you find yourself living in a world where you believe only you want what is best for you, then there's a chance that you might be motivated by suspicion if no one else seems to want good for you. Granted, there may be reasons for why that is your initial response, but it is still worth investigating. Have you recently scorned a person's kindness shown to you? Let us also seek healing in all of these ways, though. And we see one means of that healing in our passage. Verse 5, David's very first response upon hearing what happened to these men was not to chase it down the Ammonites. It wasn't anger towards being insulted in such a way. It was care for the victims. He sought to meet with them. The king left his throne to meet them in their shame and in humiliation. And this should sound very, very familiar to us, especially right now in this first Sunday of Advent. Whether you are one who has suffered the scorn of others towards your kindness, or you are one who has scorned others out of suspicion, our passage gives a testimony of tender care. You too have a king who left his throne to meet you in your shame, to meet you in your humiliation, to meet you in your suspicion. He's promised rest. He's promised healing. He's promised forgiveness. He's promised restoration. We will end our service later with, the song, with a song with these lyrics that says, Night of wonder, still and silent, heaven's brilliance from above. Light of glory pierced the darkness. Mercy pierced my heart with love. This is Jesus, King of glory, here to rescue from the fall. Son of God who comes to save us, Prince of peace and Lord of all. How can we make sense of a world that takes for itself? We must realize that kindness may be returned with suspicion and scorn. And when it does so, we seek healing. If we make sense of the world and responding in such a way to kindness... Should we simply absorb the wrong and just move on? Sadly, sometimes the world won't let us move on. Let's look at the next few verses here in 6 through 8. I wish the text gave more details, but this is what it gives us. Verse 6, all we know is that the Ammonites learned that what they did bothered David. So no doubt in David's eyes it was sinful and wrong because it was. But in the Hebrew, how they perceived it is quite literally stank or stench or odious. They realized that What they had done bothered David. Surprise. Um, So what are the options, typically, for when someone learns that they offended another person? One, they can go and talk to the person to discern and understand the offense further. Two, in humility, they can acknowledge the sin and the wrongdoing and say, maybe I was wrong. Yes, you're right. I'm sorry. Or three, they can get defensive. They get defensive towards the person that had been, has been offended or wronged. And the Ammonites choose the third option in a big way, right? They get defensive and even offensive to the point where they prepare an army for war. So let's track this. The Ammonites are offered kindness. They respond with scorn and evil. And when they learn that that scorn and evil wasn't received well, they go so far as to spend massive amounts of money to hire a mercenary army of Syrians 33,000 individuals on top of 
uh, mustering their own nation's troops. You and I can surmise at the motives, but we certainly see a significant response. How can we make sense of a world that takes for itself? We must realize that the world can be defensive and multiply sin in its response. I was given permission to tell the story of, a, of another couple. Um, so uh, a couple once told me that they were cooking a, a classic dish with each other, and one that the husband had perfected and made countless times. Right? He watched YouTube videos, like he did research, like he, he loves to cook. So he practiced this a number of times. However, uh, while he was, he, was, so he was getting the dish ready, the wife came home from work, and um, she said, oh, let me help. So lo and behold, while the husband, while they were cooking, the husband was not using the proper knife techniques for cutting a particular vegetable. You know, you get different knife techniques for different vegetables. Maybe you don't know that. Um, maybe I watched too much Food Network. Anyways, but this is, this is the thing. So of course, upon seeing this, what option did the wife have but to call him out in a sassy, rude way? So the husband paused what he was doing, turned to her, and addressed the right issue which was not how a vegetable was to be cut, but shared how he, he, he'd been disrespected in that moment, he'd been talked down to. However, and we, can, we, can, we feel this, we relate to this, the wife was right. He was using the wrong technique to cut that vegetable. It's a thing. But because the wife was right in that moment, she felt she was justified in her take on how the food was prepared, she became even more defensive. And became hurtful again. And the remainder of the food prep and dinner was finished in uncomfortable silence. Later, the wife, realizing that, that the husband was right, she had spoken harshly the first time, and then it, it just got worse. She felt convicted, asked for forgiveness. Forgiveness was received, and the discomfort was broken later on with a joke from the husband. This small testimony only begins to scrape the reality of this Bible passage where there once existed in, in the world, in the world in which we live now, there once existed a nation-sized grudge that led to the mustering of an entire, a gathering of an entire army. How have you witnessed sin leading to more sin in your life? And this is what motivates our fear of confronting others in their sin, is it not? That someone, when they wound us deeply or they uh, wound us for extended periods of time, and it must be addressed, we are afraid because we live in a world where sin multiplies sin. When people find out they did something wrong, they have the option that we talked about earlier to either repent, get defensive, and cause more pain. However, we must also consider the ways in which we are that person. You've just been accused of something, or at least that's how you heard it. It was an accusation, and it's on. It's time to muster that 33,000 army of reasons for why them bringing it up is unfair, and why what, well, they did this the other day, and you've been so good this past week, and you've been an amazing friend, sibling, spouse, boss, employee. But may we look mercifully to our God asking for strength to forgive those who multiply wrong against us. And also look mercifully to our God, asking for a soft heart, willing to be corrected and not have our first reaction be defensiveness. We are called to show kindness, 
but we're also called to be prepared to love people in a world that does not like to find out that they wronged you or bothered you or hurt someone. <clears throat> Pastor Robert Cunningham said it well, and of course he's quoting from a verse, <clears throat> the verse there where Jesus um, loved his enemies. Oh, sorry, having a brain blank. This sounds bad. Okay, all right. <laughs> but I'll just paraphrase what he said. Someone is going to have to be the first one to love their enemy, even while they remain our enemy. Jesus loved us, yet while we were still sinners, Christ came and he died for us, right? That's the verse. Sometimes hearing it in a different way makes it powerful. Someone is going to have to be the first one to love their enemy, even while they remain our enemy. Amidst the enemies you have, are you going to be the first one to love them, or are they going to be the first one to love you? just as God did for you. Well, how can we make sense of a world that takes for itself? We must realize that the world can be defensive and multiply sin in response. So when the world is defensive and multiplies sin, is an acceptable option to step down and, and try again to distance yourself. Again, sometimes it's not an option. Let's look at verses 9 through 19. Joab and the Israelite army is gathered in response, are gathered in response to the Ammonite army. So Joab goes and meets the army in the city of Rabbah. That's not explicitly in our text, but that's where they are. He goes to Rabbah, which is the Ammonite city, and the Ammonites come out in front of the city, and he quickly finds himself that the Assyrians had gathered 20 miles off to the sides. So when Joab's army moved up to go to the city of Rabbah, the Assyrian army closed in and behind them, and they're now surrounded. So the battle plan for Joab is to take a smaller band of Israel's best troops to fight against the Syrians which is the larger threat. They have the larger army. And then place the majority of the troops against the Ammonites on the side facing the city. So in this situation where Joab's very life is on the line, he makes this statement in verse 12. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. These words are emphasized all the more by the fact that this is actually the only reference explicitly to God in the passage. It comes out of Joab's mouth in a moment where they are literally surrounded with a a high statistical probability of death and defeat. Hey, God, do what it seems good to him. The odds, we're we're probably going to die. Pastor Dan, uh, I ran into him at Panera this week while I was doing sermon prep. He's like, oh, you you got chapter 10, right? He's like, oh, man. He struck his chest and he said, what a brave heart response from Joab. Isn't that it? Such a powerful line. And it is. That kind of trust is so profound. And in the end, what seemed good to God was to give the victory to Joab and to the Israelites. But after this defeat, the Syrians again relentlessly went to fight against Israel along with Hadadezer. Does that name sound familiar? Kind of, it's a hard name. It sounds familiar to me. He's from chapter 8, right? He had, he's, well, he's back. He's back with more troops just from a different region of Syria. This guy won't give up. Uh, so the Syrians and Ammonites surprise me here. They've lost so much already. They've gone to battle so many times now with them. And the cost of battle going once again to Israel is so high, but they're determined, they're relentless. They spend more, prepare more, risk more lives, and attack yet again. So David goes out to meet them. And though the enemy uh, is so determined, and so, def- so definitive is David's victory that the commander of the army, 700 chariots, 40,000 horsemen are killed, not counting foot soldiers. 
So how can we make sense of a world that takes for itself? Lastly, we must realize that the world can be relentless to win. I, I actually went to high school in Waukesha, Wisconsin. It was home for me for a good five, six years growing up uh, for a season of my life. Um, so in my high school hometown, uh, a year ago, as many of you may know, a man drove his vehicle into the Waukesha Christmas Parade, striking 68 different people and killing six of them. I won't go into detail, further detail into the horror of this crime. Um, but this past week, his trial actually just finished. And this past week also uh, was actually the one, was the, the anniversary uh, for this, have this having happened. But after having, after having committed the crime, uh, the guilty party, Daryl Brooks, was relentless in his defense. Firstly, he pleaded not guilty. Secondly, he fired his attorney because his attorney wanted to do a defense based around insanity. And after having fired his attorney, he chose to represent himself. He then frequently became combative in court, insisting his innocence, talking over the judge, making outlandish arguments, including saying that he wasn't innocent because he kept blowing his horn for people to move, and they did not move, so he kept, he kept driving. The judge described him as stubbornly defiant and went on to say, he continues to not respect the fact that a ruling has been made. He wants to argue and re-argue and re-argue points that this court has already gone over. One lawyer described his defense saying, he did everything he can except claim that the dog ate his homework. He was found guilty on all charges put against him in the end this past week. A clean sweep is the official term, and he faces life in prison without any opportunity to be released. In, 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 in Daryl Brooks' relentless efforts to win, he was a picture of the Ammonites even unto their own destruction. It is frightening what hard-heartedness and sin can drive a person or a nation to do. In our world today where tolerance is God, it is harder and harder for individuals to see their actions as sinful as though they can do no wrong, right? So they can become relentless to win. It's not what I've done, it's who I am. So I'm not guilty? How dare you? We see this often in our own lives or in the world, or in our more immediate world around us as well, in messy divorces, in long-standing family feuds, in a small, years-old conflict with a neighbor that never gets resolved, or maybe even with a fellow Christian or spiritual leader, because instead of talk, going to talk to them, it just festers. And Have you gone to endless lengths to win because you're right, because it's what you feel to be true? To what lengths would you go to prove your innocence without first considering that you may actually be guilty in some way? Let us not breeze past this sad reality, though, that we live in a world where thousands die over conflict begun by one person showing kindness, resulting in another's suspicion, defensiveness, and a relentless effort to win. So does this mean we should just never strive to be kind? No good deed goes unpunished. Time to stop doing good. 
Well, in the midst of such a sad and frustrating, broken part of our world, let us first take peace and comfort in Joab's words here. The Lord will do what seems good to him. That just as God promised to fulfill his covenant promises and to protect the promised land, which he did, he will fulfill his covenant promise to us. We too are promised a land where it will be safe, where justice will reign, where peace shall be the norm, a land where covenant kindness will be shown without it being returned with wrongdoing. It will be a place of giving and not taking. Let us, as God's people, not just anticipate this hope now, but make this reality, make this a reality here on earth. We pray to our one true God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. May we seek this, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Church, as Joab states so plainly, in the face of a world returning kindness with suspicion and scorn, becoming defensive and multiplying sin, and being relentless to win, let us be of good courage. Let us be courageous for our people, for the cities of our God. May the Lord do what seems good to him. In in regards to courage, Madeline Langle once said, We have to be braver than we think we can be because God is constantly calling us to be more than we are. I greatly appreciate those words, but I would edit them just slightly instead to say, we have to be braver than we think we can be because God is constantly calling us to be who we are. Church, in the the face of a world that takes, you are a new creation. God is calling you to be who who you are courageously, born new, not to take but to give, just as you've been given more than the world could ever take and more than the world could ever give. We're to be of good courage for our people, for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a daunting task that has been set before us. We pray that you would strengthen us by the work of your spirit. To Lord, let us first comprehend the the depths of hesed, covenantal kindness and love that you show us. And in a world that takes, may we face it, Lord, knowing the challenges that lie before us and still seek your goodness. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.